From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just pressed the stop button on this week's show, and it was a fantastic discussion. We're bringing you the big stories, including Crew launches no strings current account with 2% interest rate. We hear directly from Andrea DeCotado, CEO at Crew, who gives us a rundown on how this has been launched, all the mechanics behind it, and what they're really hoping to achieve. So really fascinated to get his perspective. Wells Fargo launches new commercial banking platform, switching from the consumer space into the corporate banking space and looking at what Wells Fargo are doing to upgrade their offering and try to compete with uh, interesting offerings in this space. And finally, an ATM that puts your bank balance on a leaderboard. Uh, This is an art collective in Miami that are doing some pretty interesting stuff. And we also get some unexpected reveals from our guests on their childhood crushes, which was not expecting. But anyhow, we get into all this and much more on today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 688 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director for Digital Business Growth at 11FS. Hey, Nicole, what are you up to? Working on anything exciting at the moment? Always, always exciting at 11FS. Um, But yeah, I I actually am uh, and normally always am, but... um, yeah, I've been particularly enjoying recently. I've been doing some work with fintech clients, um, whereas normally it could all, it's, it's normally bigger banks or incumbent institutions. So, yeah, that's been um, a different experience. So, uh, yeah, it's been great. What about you, Kate? Anything exciting apart from this podcast, of course? Couldn't possibly reveal all of our work is top secret <laughs> and highly classified. Um, but yeah, no, always always fun to work with a mixture of fintechs and banks, absolutely. Um, and speaking of fintechs, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Andrea DeCotado, CEO at Crew. Welcome back, Andrea. We'll get into your news later. Very exciting. Um, but can you remind our audience a bit about you and Crew, please? Yeah, sure. Well, great to be back on the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Andrea DeCotardo. I'm the CEO of Crew. Crew is a digital bank, and our vision is to be the first bank that is both trusted and loved by its customers. So we want to achieve this by through really having the back of our customer, making them financially better off, while also at the same time driving a positive impact for the planet. So I'll leave it at that. I'm sure we'll get into some more detail later on. I suspect we will, absolutely. And we also have a very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Emily Mann, investor at Redpoint Ventures. Welcome back to the show, Emily. Can you give our audience a reintroduction to you and to Redpoint, please? Absolutely. Well, thanks first first of all so much for having me back on. It was such a blast last time, and I'm excited to be covering some great stories today. Yeah, just to give a little bit of a, a background. Um, so Redpoint, we're a Bay Area venture firm that's been around for over two decades at this point. We've got over $6 billion in AUM and have invested in some generational companies globally. So some of the companies we've backed include Snowflake, Stripe, 
Twilio, and Nubank, among many, many others. Uh, I'm a VP here at Redpoint on our early growth team, leading our investments in areas including fintech, B2B software, some Web3, um, and some of my investments here include Ramp, the corporate card company, uh, Flowcast, Orca Security, and, and Proper Finance. And I'm excited to be digging in. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I have a particular fintech crush on Ramp in particular, so uh, very jealous of that one. Brilliant. Well, with that, let's let's get into the news. As you say, lots of exciting stories today, Emily. So first up, we have a story from The Times, and that is that Crew has banked on winning new customers with 2% interest. Crew Bank, one of only three digital firms to win a full UK retail banking license in the last six years, has announced an unprecedented no-strings interest rate of 2% on all balances in its new current account. The aim is to combine the high interest rate with buzz creating social media advertising to attract thousands of customers from its preferred demographic of 18 to 35 year olds. This would be a mixture of both youngsters opening their first account and those switching from a rival bank. Crew CEO, Andrea De Cotado, hello Andrea, told The Times they plan to win 1 million customers for a newly launched current account within five years. Crew confirms its intended use of predictive technology to track spending in real time in the future. This strategy, it hopes, will help customers to make better financial decisions and stay on top of their transactions as well as upcoming payments. Um, well, Andrea, great to have you here to discuss this with us. No surprise, going to come to you first. Would you give our listeners a rundown of you know, how this new current account is going to look in look in practice? Yeah, absolutely, Kate. So it's a current account, uh, a digital one, with all the features that customer would like expect and and need from a digital bank. So you know all the basic, call it direct debit, standing order, Apple, Google Pay, live notification, spending insight, um, as well as an overdraft facility, clearly subject to credit worthiness and affordability. Uh, but on top of that, it pays two percent EAR on any credit balance at any time. And at the same time, it helps drive a positive impact for the planet because we're also planting two trees on behalf of any new customer that joins crew. So the way I see it is basically it's a digital current account, but actually pays like a savings account. Interesting. Okay. I mean, you've described this account as being no strings. So what sort of strings are you seeing elsewhere? Well, the way I think about it, like there are a lot of banks right now that are either making, you know, great headlines, but with very limited real benefit for the customer, or sometimes they put a lot of very complicated condition that you need to meet, whether it's, you know, a minimum monthly amount of pay in, or at some points, even some like yearly fees that customers need to pay. So they're kind of somehow giving with one hand and taking with the others, which I don't think that's, that's really good. I can give you a couple of examples, Kate. Um, there is a digital bank, actually a very good one. Um, they are offering a 5% EAR on Roundup, which sounds great, right? But when you hence the great headlines, but when you do the math, even assuming you use this bank for literally every single transaction in your life, probably all you're going to get is anywhere between eight and 10 pounds in one year from now, right? So back to the point, not really as great as it could be for customers. Or, you know, another bank says, oh, we give you 1.75%, but only up to 20,000. So we'll start seeing some strings here, Kate. Uh, and mm -hmm. also you need to put in at least 500 quid every single month on the account. So... I think the beauty of our offering is the simplicity of it, right? Is whether you have one pound or whether you're lucky enough to have all the way up to 85,000 pounds, which is the limit of FSCS, will pay you 2% on whatever is your balance. No strings attached. And uh, I think that's the beauty of it. Certainly, certainly sounds pretty appealing. Um, obviously, the interest rate is a huge part of what's driving the headlines. But you know, obviously, we've covered in the intro, there's other things you want to be doing to try and attract that 
you know, quite ambitious sounding 1 million new customers. So what do you think, apart from the interest rate, is going to be that the driver of, of you hitting that target or not? In our mind, is just living and breathing our, our vision in everything we do, right? Really making sure we actually put customer and, and their financial well-being first. Give you a couple of examples, right? Overdraft is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I found it personally crazy that most banks are offering overdraft at the 39.9% APR these days is a ripoff. We are going out with a very flat overdraft fee at 24.9. So just a very concrete financial benefit for the customer. But even going beyond that, sticking to the, to the overdraft point, realistically, most banks are there hoping that the customer will dip into the overdraft and fall back with their payments so they can make a hell of a lot of money out of them, right? What we are actually doing is we're actively working on trying to achieve the opposite. We're working on some very cool new feature that hopefully will be released shortly in the new year that will use some predictive technology to help customer to avoid to get into the overdraft. And again, the point to be better off financially. So those are like from a financial perspective, like a couple of examples. And if we look at the positive impact and the whole uh, part that we want to play in terms of helping the planet, um, well, I, I'm sure as you've seen, we're planting two trees for each customer. We already got to 150,000 trees, which is quite a big number. And we have a mission to get to a million by the end of the year. I was doing some calculation to understand, okay, what does 1 million trees actually mean? We'll have set the amount of CO2 that is generated by 24 million people traveling from London to Manchester and back. So it's a pretty, pretty big number. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a very interesting because, you know, obviously when I saw this, this story in the news, I think my first reaction was like, oh, wow, like actual interest on the account. And then my second instinct reaction, every time we see these new fintechs come out, I sort of had this moment in my head of thinking like, would I bother to open an account? You know, we know what apathy and lethargy there is. And you know, it definitely like crossed my mind of like, even if I didn't use the account, I would at least have got two trees planted. <laughs> and yeah. that's a good thing to have done. So yeah, I think it's an interesting combination and, and I'm intrigued to see how it how it plays out. And do you think um, do you think others in the industry, particularly in the UK, will follow your lead with these high interest Current accounts, obviously, it varies a huge amount from from market to market. But in the UK, it's it's as you say, not the mainstream. Do you think this will change things? I really hope so, to be honest, because I I actually think that banking should not be as sadly it is today, mostly about profit extraction, but it should be about having the back of your customer and helping them being better off. Um, so I really hope that people will follow. I'm not so sure. Uh, because if you look at, at some of the, of the slightly older and bigger player, most of them, they have a very different structure. They're not digital. So their, their cost structure is different. The cost income ratio, some of them have a, has a crazy high ones, which makes it really hard for them to be able to follow our steps. But, you know, I would say I'm optimistic. At least some of the, of the new players, I really hope they'll, they'll follow us. Brilliant. Well, I mean, yeah, I could definitely ask you questions all day, but I should probably, just to be fair, open up to the rest of the floor as well. Nicole, what, what did you think of this when you when you saw this news? So when I first saw it, I was thinking, oh, is that any different from a linked savers account? You know, we have quite a lot of current accounts that you, you can quite easily get a linked saver. But then I remembered that there's a whole separate application process for that product. And that actually with the demographic that you're targeting, are they interested in savings products? Are they interested in taking the time it takes to make that application? Do they really want two accounts? Do they know what a link saver is? And actually by bundling the two, you've introduced a concept that I'm fascinated by. It's this kind of concept of 
product agnosticity. So in the future, will it actually just be that we have a relationship with a bank? We have one account and whether you are saving, spending or you're um, you're borrowing money, actually it's just one account. And this is the sort of the, the green shoots of that. And I can see with the demographic why that's um, why that would be so appealing and that there's no confusion or no effort in mixing, you know, earning interest on your savings um, with your spending. Um, but what I was really interested in is how are you managing, if you're going to use your deposits for lending, how are you managing the liquidity around that? Because you would think that the the current account balances are more volatile than savings balances. And then therefore, how are you predicting how much is coming in and how much interest you're paying? And I was also interested in wondering how you're funding that interest. Um, you know, yeah, so just a bit more about the business model behind it. I'd be super interested to know about no, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, I mean, your whole analysis, Nicole, is, is spot on, right? Uh, it's, it's just all about simplicity and, and, and actually helping customers to be better off. And one other point that I'll just add to, to, to your analysis is also like removing the hassle, right? Like we mm-hmm. are probably all used to, oh, I get paid and then I need to move money out of my account into the e-saver and then it's like, holy shit, I put too many. I need to bring someone back or, or the other way around. I haven't put enough and then I've wasted interest on some money, we are removing all of that, right? Like the whole anxiety to having to deal with that, which I think does bring a huge value to it. Yeah. Um, to the business point, um, to the business model point you've raised, Nicole, I mean, right now, as you know, the base rate is, is 3%. And by being a bank, you can place all customer deposit at the Bank of England account and you receive 3%, which every bank is receiving. Uh, and so, you know, we are, our view is to give back as much as we possibly can of that. So two thirds right now to customer. So that is not a direct cost per se, because we still have a small margin that allow us to operate. That topped up with our very lean cost structure and the high use of technology and automation that keeps the cost low, allows us to have a sustainable model there. The last point you made is a very good one in terms of like, you know, how can you actually predict what portion of, of the money that you're gonna have in the definable as sticky and therefore can be used for some long-term lending. Um, The answer to that is some modeling, which is not too different from the one that has to be done. Because if you think about it these days, the most popular savings account are e-savers. There are no conditions, like the money is not tied up in Mm -hmm. there. And when you look at the data, especially in a period such as this one with with high interest uh, and interest raising continuously, the volatility of the e-saver is crazy. Because people that have quite a bit of cash, they tend to be very aware of, of the interest. And, you know, one day they're in a specific bank because they get 2% that they, after two days, a bank says, oh, I'm giving you 2.5. And all of a sudden you see a big swing of liquidity from one account to another. And then there is another bank, 275, and keep moving. So it's not too different from that. Quite a bit of modeling uh, to predict that, get the data on the customer behavior. And then you can still use a portion of that to lend. I love that. Thank you so much for that insight. And um, you know, what you said about the base rate at the moment, I was having a conversation the other day about what innovation will we see where they're, we're in a, um, we're not in a low rate environment anymore. Um, so, but th- that's a conversation for another day, but thank you very much. Uh, super interesting and sounds like you're really on top of what's happening in the back end. Well, uh, we'll stop the interrogation now, I promise. Um, Emily, obviously we've touched on you know, demographics and the importance of kind of that demographic focus. I'd love to get your perspective from a um, the investor side, you know, are we seeing more banks looking to become the primary account of that Gen Z audience? Because the 18 to 35 is quite broad, but sort of at the bottom of that, that Gen Z audience, you know, what, are you, what are you seeing happening in that part of the market? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, look, every bank is having a moment where they're thinking through like, how am I going to capture this next generation? Right. And this next generation has a, a, you know, it's a tough one to serve. They have a lot of demands uh, around usability, experience, uh, and, you know, in some cases, impact uh, is something that really speaks to them. Right. Uh, And so uh, I think there's also generally a broad distrust uh, that ha- that you see uh, among this demographic of a lot of the incumbents or traditional financial institutions. Uh, and so we've seen uh, from the investor lens, at least, a lot of different approaches to take to try and capture and captivate the not initially savings, because that's what, you know, you have when you're starting out, and then over time grow with these customers to then be the bank of choice or, you know, financial services provider of choice for their next 5, 10, 15 financial products, right? Their first loan, you know, their first credit card, and then later on, maybe a mortgage or auto loan, uh, and layering on to, to build kind of that core relationship. Um, I think we're seeing some, some companies start even earlier, Right. So if you think about in the U.S. Uh, and across uh, the U.K. as well, you've got companies like Greenlight, Step, Go Henry that are very much targeting the under, you know, eight, sub 18, think, you know, teenage years demographic with the idea of like, hey, how can we, you know, start teaching financial literacy early on? And then by, in that way, gain uh, brand recognition and trust to be able to serve them over time. Uh, Andrea, I do want to say I really like the no strings attached um, value proposition that you have uh, as a fintech investor for nearly half a decade. I can't say I've signed up for so many, you know, different products where the headline, you know, ad is great. And then you get into like, well, if you get you get this rate, if you introduce like 15 other customers to the wait list or you deposit, it's only for the first thousand dollars in your account or something like that. And there's always like the asterisks and then the asterisks and the asterisks. And then, you know, it ends up becoming much less interesting. I think, you know, if it, re- it reminds me a lot of what resonated with um, Ramp's value proposition early on, where they said, we're just giving you 1.5% cash back flat on all of your spend, right? Rather than like, hey, you know, this converts to points that can be redeemed on these days that I think was a, a, a big pain point with a lot of the traditional corporate card providers. But I think that that, um, that kind of a clear messaging helps build, uh, you know, that that layer of trust from an early day that then sets you up to serve uh, the customer more deeply as you expand. No, it's very um very exciting and simplicity absolutely is king. And um, sadly, I think we have to move us on. I believe we could probably get excited about this all day. And congrats, Andrea, to, to the team to getting this launched. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to get you back on when you release these predictive technologies you've you've alluded to. So. Uh, Keep keep an eye out for those ones. Our next story is from Banking Dive, and that is that Wells Fargo has launched a new commercial banking platform. Wells Fargo on Monday announced the launch of a new commercial banking platform. The platform, called Vantage, replaces the bank's commercial electronic office portal, or CEO portal, which it launched over two decades ago to serve its commercial banking and corporate and investment banking clients. More than $1 trillion in payment volume flows through the portal each month 
in addition to generating over 5 million sessions monthly, according to the bank. Wells Fargo said the bank built artificial intelligence and machine learning into the foundation of the platform to help manage the range of customer types expected to use Vantage. Um, Emily, why, what's going on with Wells Fargo at the moment? There seems to be quite a lot of, of things happening, quite a lot of overhaul going on. Have you, have you got any, any thoughts on why that's happening? I mean, I actually think this ties directly into the last story in the last segment, right? It's something that you're seeing across the board. Uh, I call it, you know, the consumerification of, well, everything, right? If you think the next generation, what is the next generation of consumers going to demand? Well, that next generation of consumers is also the next generation of business owners, right? And so increasingly, they're looking for uh a digital first, highly automated experience uh, across all different aspects of both their personal and their, you know, business lives. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure uh, on incumbent institutions like a Wells Fargo to really like modernize and drive that across all parts of their business. Uh, commercial banking is one space that uh, I've been nerdily excited about for a long time because it's been so relationship driven uh, for such a long time. And at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know how many millennials or Gen Z actually want to pick up the phone and call their banker or send an email. Like, no, they they want to get in and get whatever they need to get done, done quickly. Uh, and so I think you're, you're only going to see this increasingly uh, across different areas and sectors. It started a lot with consumer banking, um, but it's now you're starting to see the evidence of it moving into other areas as well. Yeah, absolutely. Nicole, what was what was your verdict on, on Wells Fargo's launch? Were you impressed? Yeah, I mean, um, I can't say I've ever been a commercial banking client in my uh, lifetime, but um, I imagine that, that, you know, the experience that we have, the experiences we have in commercial banking are uh, not anywhere near as user-friendly as we do in other aspects of finance. And I think Wells Fargo realising that actually there's this huge opportunity to provide a far better and a consumer-like experience to those types of clients is, is a really good one. I mean, they're the largest um, commercial banking provider in the US. And I think there's a tendency to maybe get complacent with that. And I love the fact that they're recognising that, they're harnessing it, and they're actually respecting their clients by investing in modernization. Um, Andrea, I think I read that the head of digital for Wells Fargo said that the bank is attuned to the fintech ecosystem and looking to partner where it, where it makes sense to. So if uh, if Wells Fargo come come knocking on Cruise door and say, "Hey, partner up with us," what's what's your take going to be? Well, it, it's hard to just say a yes or a no. Like I guess the key consideration that that we always do whenever we are assessing a potential partner are are they aligned to our vision and values? Are they? Is their technology in line with, with our standards and the type of customer experience we want to provide? And is the reputation out there something that is aligned to what we would want the crew customer to think, right? Yeah, no, it makes, makes complete sense. Um, Emily, one other thing I wanted to get your take on in particular is, I think, uh, if I've understood correctly, Wells have talked potentially about this being like a platform that could scale or there's an ambition maybe to kind of scale from SMEs to, to big companies. How f- possible is that to do? Like, is it possible to scale a product that works for SMEs and big companies? Is it possible to serve both sectors, do you think? It's actually very challenging, right? I think that the, from what everything that I've seen in the time that I spent in my space, and a, a traditional SME 
actually ends up looking a lot more like a consumer than they do a, a multinational or a larger enterprise, right? Just in terms of, it's a couple of things. The, the first being the owner is, the owner operator tends to be the one who is accessing the account. As a company grows, right, you have a finance team, a treasury team, uh, and a whole group of people that need to be uh, accessing and managing the finances on the back end. Um, the, that's, that's part one. And so as you scale up, you need to think through a lot of access management, controls, um, you know, how, and then think about like things like FX, hedging, risk, right? Even like probably the public markets, either equity or uh, the public capital markets. Whereas if you're a small business, your needs are much more similar to a consumer. Like, hey, I need an expansion loan or some sort of a loan. Uh, I need a banking product. I need a card product, right? And so you, I think you end up seeing a, a pretty dividing line between the two. And so while I think it's amb ambitious for them to have um, the the gall or not gall, that's not probably not the right word, but if they I'm, it's glad I'm glad to see they have the ambitions to scale this up to all different kinds of businesses. But I think that if you try to address these segments with the same product, like that's pretty misguided. No, interesting. Nicole, will we see SMEs finally be properly served in the current economic climate? We've always got kind of new people popping up at and right center. What's your take on the status quo in SME banking? I think when it comes to, well, there's kind of two angles to that question, I suppose, is being served from a growth perspective, which is the funding landscape, and then actually just being served as a, as a client and having their banking needs solved for. And we've seen so much disruption in personal banking. Um, we're seeing more in wealth. And we know that there's been so many fintechs coming to the market to try and change how SMEs are served. So I think that there's definitely traction there and there's been some real success stories in terms of uh, fintechs that are gaining popularity and genuinely changing how SMEs can bank. I think for me, the bit that's actually really challenging is the scaling journey. So we now have a lot of fintechs that are servicing sort of micro SMEs and then you have commercial banking and, you know, there's that spectrum. And it's the bit in the middle, actually, where they've kind of gone past the need for simple banking products but they're not quite as complex as commercial banking. And it's really having a fintech and the banking experience brought together to, to service those needs, but also make it a joyful experience. So not having to go to a clunky organization or heritage organization because they have the products that the SMEs want, but they may not have the experience. But then getting the experience at the lower end of the spectrum, but they've just not quite got the expertise or the actual product suite to service them. So I think the really interesting thing for me is maybe around the more of the, the top of the M of the SME. Um, and, and will we see any new propositions coming to market to service scaling? Yeah, no, I agree. That's it's a really difficult space. Um, I think one last thing I just wanted to get your perspective on, Andrea, actually, is obviously we said in the intro, or Wells apparently have said that they've built artificial intelligence and machine learning into this platform. Obviously, you alluded to you guys building sort of predictive technologies into your platform. I wondered, you know, if you, if you had any kind of learnings from that process, what, what do you think will be the main challenges that Wells will be experiencing as they try to build those capabilities into their platform? It's a good question, Kate. When when it comes to either like predictive type of analytics technology or, or AI, it's all about how, how you set it up, right? Having the right amount and right data set at the beginning, as big as possible, so that you can cover all possible scenarios 
and you build it up and, and, and then the testing, right? There is a huge amount of testing as soon as you've built up something that has any element of predictive or AI to make sure it works, quite a bit of tweaking. And yeah, those are the, the key challenges there, but it's super fascinating. Absolutely. Well, let's let's see how, how this one plays out. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as... On ramping. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. And that is from Motherboard. And that is that robot landlords are buying up houses. Imagine Homes is an automated landlord, a company that uses new data tools and technologies to minimise the costs of on-site human labour while collecting profits from rental properties. They are essential to the new and growing sector of companies backed by Wall Street investment firms that buy up thousands of single-family rental homes across several states in America. Founded in 2016, Imagine Homes is linked to Cultures Capital Management, a West Coast investment fund interested in companies that automate and simplify real estate transactions. Housing advocates and progressive lawmakers say these types of companies further push lower and middle income Americans out of home ownership. This accusation is they are buying up the kinds of houses once affordable to first time homeowners and inflating the market with investors. Really interesting one. Um, half intrigued and, and half a little bit spooked. Nicole, what was what was your reaction to this? Is is this a bit too far with automation? For me, per- well, it all depends if you're thinking of the perspective of the landlord or the tenant and also what type of landlord. So imagine homes as a en masse uh, home buying entity versus someone like me who I live in London, I rent in London, but I used to live in Glasgow and I still own my flat there. So um, I'm both a landlord and a tenant. So for me as a landlord, this this isn't right for me. I, it's like automation cannot, I'm renting out my home and automation cannot replace the trust that I need to feel of someone that's going to hopefully take care of my home. And also from a landlord's perspective, I want to be able to provide a safe, comfortable place that matches the tenant's needs that they're happy to be in. So having a machine in the middle that does all of that assessment and trust building just wouldn't be right for me. And then similarly as a tenant, yeah, again, it's it's the same on the other side of the coin with the trust aspect, but also just it's a you know it's quite often a very big decision to move into a home whether it's rented or not, um, and having a machine or automation answer some of the questions or go through the process for you, for me personally, it doesn't work, and and I would feel confident to say that a, a lot of people wouldn't like it. Where, however, I do think automation could come in is actually in the logistics of actually. Um, you know, and once you've decided that you want the home, securing that home, agreeing your contracts and whatnot, they're very messy processes, very admin heavy, and they're very costly for landlords, tenants, and um, agencies and other parties in that in that process and in that value chain. Um, so I'd love to see some of this technology applied to the renting journey, but not necessarily at the point that we're talking about. Interesting. Emily, obviously, you know, this is designed, I think, to appeal to investors. You're an investor. Does it does it appeal to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, 
This has been a category. So maybe just to start with a personal experience, right? I remember as a young graduate uh, living in New York City where uh, a rental broker wanted to charge me 5% annual rent as a finder's fee. Uh, And I was like, you did nothing for me. I I saw the pictures of this online. I came and saw the apartment and now you, you think you Oh, I owe you 5%, right? And so if I think through the entire real estate chain, there are a lot of points that, uh, you know, people are extracting a lot of value uh, or a lot of money without providing the requisite amount of value, right? And so I think that's why uh, a lot of builders have been really excited about the uh, the leverage that automation can apply for some of these points along the chain. Now, I think I agree with what Nicole was saying, and uh, there's a lot more, I think that technology can be applied to the workflow components, but you still need a little bit of a human touch, especially for something that is as difficult to underwrite and price properly as a house, right? Um, Not only do people have different preferences, but these are physical objects. uh, And uh, I am always skeptical of any company that assumes that they can, you know, make a fully automated decision just based on data that is available. I mean, I'm sure they have a bunch of different data sources, but online uh, or without, you know, sort of an in-person element to it. At the end of the day, a lot of these, uh, as with any underwriting model, and I'm sure Andrea can speak to this too, but it's garbage in, garbage out, right? And so if you don't have the right data inputs, like you're not going to get the right outputs. Uh, And I think, you know, you've seen some of these challenges uh, in with companies like Zillow here in the U.S. who have you know publicly now come out and taken a huge hit to the stock and, and the business by saying like, "Oops, we like had our pricing models mistuned, right? And we actually overpaid for a bunch of the houses that are now in our portfolio." Um, those types of mistakes can be very, very costly and almost you know near impossible to correct. Um, and so I, I think that that's, you know, where my skepticism comes from, from an investor perspective. When someone comes to me and tells me like, hey, we have a fully automated way to do this. It'll be, you know, so much better. Uh, and also like, hey, we're not going to know if it works or not for a long time, just given the horizon upon which, you know, housing markets move. Uh, uh, my, I always have like a little bit of a like, a, are, are you sure? A little, like, a healthy pinch really, of skepticism. Yeah. A healthy pinch of skepticism, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Andrea, obviously, you sort of mentioned when you were talking to Cole through some of like the business model decisions you guys have made. You talked about the importance of some of your underlying automated processes. You know, how, how do you kind of calculate that balance between what should be automated and, and, and what shouldn't be? You know, obviously, you're making decisions that are going to be critical to helping you grow and scale effectively. How do, how do you guys manage that? I mean, I'm linking to what, to what Emily and Nicole were saying. Like, uh, automation is great. It can really help and technology is amazing. And, and if you look at the banking system, technology has, has helped the industry moving like forward like massively in all different elements of it. But there is always need to be a balance. And, and I can give you an example when, when, when it comes to, to banking, right? Like you can have a very, very well-tuned automated decision. It could be the credit decision engine, for example, as, as Emily was referring to, or the onboarding process. But you always need to balance that with a kind of a fallback approach that has the human touch and the human intervention. 
in banking and personal banking becomes even more relevant because you have a certain set of customers that could be vulnerable customer where for them, you need actually someone to pick up the phone, even if you are a digital bank and help them through. Because at the end of the story, like I, in my view, every business should be all about is giving customer the best possible experience and the best possible service. And there could never be a one fit all type of thing. So great automation as far as, as is tuning correctly. And as Emily said, like it's good data that are feeding that, but there is always need to be a bit of a fallback with the human touch approach when it's highly needed by the customer. Yeah, absolutely. And also you've touched on, on vulnerable customers, but I suppose me and my gut instinct when I read this story was, you know, we know that algorithms in the past typically haven't worked well for for groups that have been discriminated against. You know, they've embedded discrimination in some of those models. Um, and we know in particular that, you know, minority groups in the US have, have really struggled in, in the housing market whenever it comes to your credit scoring or, you know, um, likely to be um, approved for loans. You know, that's a, a a space where we're still got a lot to fix. So that's kind of where my my initial my initial uh, reaction was. Emily, I don't know, is am I being overly paranoid or is is there something that we should be worried about here? No, not at all. I mean, again, right, like garbage in, garbage out, like all these models are trained on past data. And if your past data is biased, your future decisions will be biased as well. That's There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think the part that scares me even more, like makes me even more nervous is uh, just that like once you have an algorithm, like I think people, the, the culpability goes away a little bit, right? Because people will be like, throw up their hands, be like, oh, sorry, like the algorithm said no. Like, you know, we have a strong, you know, you know, whatever buzzword you want to throw in there, data science, AI, ML generated, yada, yada, yada. And therefore we cannot lend to you. Whereas um, if there's a human making the decision, there is a little bit more of an auditability. Uh, there's a little bit more of like responsibility uh, in certain ways. Well, so bias can exist in both. But I think when you add in this sheen of technology on top of it, then uh, it makes the decision seem more, you know, final in a way that could actually end up hurting underserved communities even more. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely something to to watch out for and to try and sort of hold these types of platforms to to account for as they as they grow. So let's let's keep our eyes on it. Um our next story comes from CNBC. Uh, also quite a spicy topic. Here we go. Uh, UK banks have been told to break the class ceiling with new targets to boost diversity amongst senior hires. The UK's financial services sector has been told it needs to do more to break the class ceiling with new targets to boost working class senior hires by 2030. Governing body, the City of London Corporation, has said the moves are crucial for improving boardroom diversity and boosting growth in the sector. In a new report, the governing body's socioeconomic diversity task force outlined a pathway for firms to ensure that accents and parentage do not dictate workplace progression. According to the study, around half of all UK financial services employees are currently from non-professional backgrounds defined as working class and intermediate backgrounds, yet these groups tend to progress 25% slower than their peers and just over a third, 36% of those employees managed to climb the ladder to senior levels, the report said. Ooh, fun one as well. Um, I don't know who to throw under the bus for this one, but how do we define class in the UK? Nicole, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chuck you on that one. Uh, goodness me, what a question. Um, very, uh, yeah. If you asked every single person in the UK this, I 
or the world to think they would give you a different answer. I think the answer is, is that you can't define it and um, we should be aware of it, but we shouldn't be trying to uh, associate people and individuals with class because it is so difficult to define. So when it comes to other spectrums of diversity, um, they're far more easily, they're, they're far more easier to identify with. And I just think class is just a very, very difficult one. I appreciate the sentiment around this, um, for sure. Um, and with someone with a Glaswegian accent, I've been in situations before where, you know, people have had some elements of judgment, prejudice, whatever. So I appreciate the sentiment. I think the difficulty for me on this story is that it aims to, um, break this class ceiling at boardroom level, whereas actually the barriers for me when it comes to class, I would think actually happen more in early careers. And actually we should be thinking about how we in increase the funnel of talent into organisations at the early career level and then support those individuals through the ranks rather than trying to tackle it top down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, yeah, it's about trying to understand where where those problems are, are happening. And I think we see this, obviously financial services has a particular problem, but um, you know, it happens in, in other parts of the world as well. In terms of higher education, you know, privilege in higher education, I think lots of universities get given targets, but you can see that actually a lot of the disadvantage is happening you know, as early as primary school, that kind of earlier stage of, of childhood. So really, really big problems for, for us to solve. Um, Emily, you're not kind of, you know, working in a bank, but obviously you're spending a lot of time in the financial services sector do you, do you think financial services has a class issue well um yes is the short answer to that uh but i think that that happens in you know every economy you know financial services tends to be a cushy job right at the end of the day and cushy jobs are high in demand uh by by you know every it folks generally and those always just end up ending up having overrepresentation of the privileged, right? The ones who, you know, knew about it early or brought up in an environment or culture to gear towards that or have, you know, connections or peers uh, who are in the industry similarly as well. Um, it's funny, though, I think, you know, as a, an American, um, what it, I, I was struck kind of by in this story was just how much class is apparently represented through accents in the UK. So I can tell, you know, Nicole, Kate, Andrea, you guys have different accents. But to me, I, I don't know what that is meant to, you know, signify or what the implications of all of that are. Um, and I think that I totally agree with what you were saying, Nicole, that we this is more of a, a funnel problem. Like we should make sure that, um, you know, students from the earliest ages are, you know, getting access to the types of mentors, the types of, or exposure even to the types of roles that exist across this segment uh, so that they can, you know, have that as part of their, their journey. Um, really intrigued to see how our listeners some of whom I've seen work in financial services given that <laughs> describe react to having their jobs described as cushy like I think that's going to be fun to, to watch the fallout but no I think I think absolutely right um Andrea obviously we've heard Emily's perspective as an American um you're Italian what's what's your view is this a uniquely British issue do these issues occur in other countries as well no I mean I personally think that the whole topic around diversity and inclusion is, is, is more of a global challenge. And, uh, and actually, like from my perspective, I think the UK is quite a bit ahead of other countries 
for sure is ahead of some countries in continental Europe where this is even worse. But again, I agree with everything that has been said. And, uh, what I don't quite like is when there is a lot of focus towards the right back end of the funnel in terms of like, oh, you're hiring this position, you have to hire this specific gender or this specific race. I, I don't really think that's the solution. The solution is starting very early on, like really at the beginning in terms of school and education, because otherwise, like we are trying almost to fix the problem by creating another problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nicole, I think you're absolutely right, like what you're saying at the top of this story about like how it's you know, class is too nebulous and we need to focus on other things. But I suppose how easy is it to drive change if you can't get to like a specific definition? Do you need to be able to kind of get to a definition, even if it's missing stuff out, in order to be able to kind of track change and really push things? What, what's your view? I think when it comes to the class issue in terms of making financial services industry more inclusive, it's it's about making significant changes at the hiring level. Again, I'm probably going to come back to early careers, but it's less about university and rank of university and more about lived experience or um, opinion or work that you've done outside of university. You know, people that write blogs have got side hustles, have um, gig economy stuff going on. It's actually, it's around how we assess early careers talent to understand how entrepreneurial, how ambitious, how bold, how, how brains work. Um, and, and and appreciating that. And then when we do, even if we do have get to the place where there's the right level of diversity from a class, I hate saying that, um, you know, in the adversity commas, um, I, when we get to the right level of class diversity, early careers, it's then about, it's, 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 it's a, as much about equity as it is for every other um, diversity spectrum that we we you know, we manage when we come to work. And it's really just about understanding that different people have different barriers when it comes to achieving their outcomes and that empathy is absolutely the key to that. And it's not as, I don't think it's about a strategy about defining how do we fix class. It's about people just understanding that diversity and inclusion is just about understanding, supporting one another and understanding that equity is the key to that. Absolutely. Um, well, hopefully FinTech Insider will still be running in 2030 and we can check back in on this story then uh, and see see how, see how the industry has changed. But now before we move on to the final section of the show, and that is called Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more clickworthy news from this week. Nicole, do you want to kick things off for us? Sure. Thanks, Kate. So Fintech's Canada Association launches with significant industry backing, and this story comes from Fintech Futures. An association of Canadian fintech firms and global financial institutions has launched to push for a whole-of-government approach to foster the growth and development of the fintech sector in Canada. Fintechs Canada, which is the name of the association, is a not-for-profit looking to work with policymakers to encourage and promote payments modernisation, open banking, the digitalisation of money and the modernisation of anti-money laundering. The association's membership ranges from global heavyweights such as MasterCard, Square and Wise to firms such as Coho, Paysend and Wellsimple. Fintechs Canada has also tasked itself with educating the public and raising awareness of the benefits of the wider Canadian fintech sector. So this is a great move for Canada and its fintech scene. Despite a record year of fintech investment in 2021, where there was $6.4 billion of investment inflow and 162 deals done in, the, in Canada, 
Much of the region is still behind the curve when it comes to tech and particularly fintech. Traditional banks still dominate the market with only 26% of people using one or more online banks. Uh, just, um, yeah, sort of miles away from the UK and what we're used to here. Uh, however, there is massive excitement and enthusiasm amongst the opportunity to change that dynamic. And a central organisation will undoubtedly help advance the ecosystem with FinTech Canada aiming to break down barriers to competition and innovation. And we know from the success of bodies like Innovate Finance in the UK that having that central objective collaborator really, really helps. And final note for me in this one, I was in Canada in Montreal in March um, seeing one of our clients. And yeah, it's such an exciting place to be. There's such a drive and such opportunity to disrupt and do things differently. So yeah, big, uh, big clap for Canada in setting this one up and really excited to see how it advances fintech. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you're looking for more on Canadian fintech, you can go check out episode 611 of Fintech Insider, where we deep dived into the subject with guests from Coho, Solero, National Bank of Canada and Brib Financial. So lots of insights there for you as well. Our next story is from Finextra, and that is that Thales is releasing a voice payment card for the visually impaired. Thales has released a voice payment card to help guide visually impaired people as they conduct transactions at the till. Users have to install an app on their mobile phone, which is uniquely associated with their card. Each time they make a payment, the mobile app vocalises the amount of the transaction before letting users validate it with their secret code. The card works as a connected device that gets the transaction amount from the point of sale terminal and communicates it to the mobile app via Bluetooth. The customer can then hear the information either through the phone's speaker or through earphones. Well, firstly, if you're looking for more on the power of inclusive design in financial services, you should definitely check out the 11FS inclusive design report, which is available on 11FS.com. But this news really prompted me to have a think about all of the challenges which visually impaired people must encounter just trying to use everyday banking services generally, you know, that the majority of us take for granted. You know, we quite often talk about telephone banking and cash machines as being outdated, but they're obviously from you know, what I was reading today, you know, still vital lifelines for visually impaired people because digital tools haven't yet replaced them or bridged that gap with sufficient technology. So it's great that Thales have developed this, apparently in partnership with a French fintech called Handsome that I had to do a very careful Google search term earlier for to get to the right get the right result. But I've not come across them before and the information that is online about them is, is fairly light. Um, but they seem to be using this card as a foundation for a broader fintech offering for the visually impaired. So exciting development, but hopefully this is just the beginning. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section today, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This story comes from Art News, and that is that at Art Basel, Miami Beach, an ATM announces your account balance. At Art Fairs, gallerists have the difficult job of sizing up each person who comes by their booth and trying to answer a simple question, exactly how much money does this person have? But a new work by the Brooklyn-based art collective Muschuf is looking to take the guesswork out of the equation. Anyone who wants to can approach an ATM that must have set up at the booth and reveal their bank account balance. ATM Leaderboard 2022 is an ATM that must have acquired from an ATM manufacturing company, but then retrofitted with a screen emblazoned with the word leaderboard and a camera. When someone inserts their debit card and plugs in their pin, the camera takes a picture as the account balance flashes on the screen and an animation spins around, declaring the participant to be well endowed or not so much. Uh, Interesting one. Um, 
Nicole, would you be happy to have your bank balance announced to everyone? <laughs> certainly not at Art Basel <laughs> with the art collectors. Um, yeah, and certainly also not after Black Friday. Um, so yeah, I think it's a uh, 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 for me. No, thank you. I will keep that information private. Andrea, what about you? Yeah, I'm with Nicole on that. Uh, no, no thanks. I mean, if I'm playing, I'm playing devil's advocate here, you know, is there sort of a moral or ethical lesson here about, you know, we should be more open and honest with our finances, Emily? You know, is there too much taboo around how much is in our bank accounts? I think so. I mean, look, I think uh, TikTok's been uh, an amazing driver at this trend of, I don't know if you guys have seen the guys who go around and like, hey, like, show me how much is in your bank account. Um, uh, I think that, you know, personal finances have always, salaries for the longest time have been taboo to talk about. Uh but I think that that just gives opportunities for discrimination to occur. Although I do think that uh, this is pretty funny because most of the wealthiest people that I know are probably not keeping a lot of cash on hand. <laughs> and so how accurate would this, uh, this be? I like the social commentary here, but nah, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, I also, I also doubt that uh, art collector type or art fair type people have any issues profiling people like I accidentally went to an art fair once not by choice um and cl- nobody attempted to sell me anything <laughs> because I quite clearly quite clearly was profiled as not having any money at all which was highly accurate at the time um so yeah it sounds like sounds like a bit of fun but um okay let's let's play a game I've got four four people and we're gonna have a guess which of these figures will be higher up the mischief leaderboard based on their net worth so first up we've got King Charles III, the current British monarch, the UFC fighter Conor McGregor, author J.K. Rowling, or US pop star Jennifer Lopez. Nice international bunch there. Um, Andrea, who's who are you putting your money on? Who's who's got the most dollar? I think I'm gonna go for J Lo, if nothing, because just because she was uh, a bit of a crush I had when I was a teenager. So my money's on J-Lo. <laughs> it's all coming out now. Nicole, who, who, which of those four figures did you have a crush on? Uh, well, definitely Charles. Well, cer- certainly Charles and the Crown. <laughs> um, but, um, I think I was originally going to pick Conor McGregor, but then I was thinking that I think he spends as much as he earns. So I honestly have no idea. <laughs> yeah, Emily, who's who's your money on? Well, because only because I can claim the being a dumb American, I was going to guess King Charles. <laughs> Sounds like he has a, a lot of bling, uh, <laughs> at least from what I can see. Um, yeah, I, gosh, I, leaderboard game. I think then it would be J.K. Rowling next, and then J.Lo, probably. Conor McGregor, I feel like, yeah, like you said, Nicole, he spends a lot, but I think he's also lost a couple fights. No, am I, <laughs> am I wrong on that? <laughs> Yeah, pot- potential fall from grace. Yeah. <laughs> What's you the get, answer, Kate? You're pretty close, Emily, but uh, no, it's actually J.K. Rowling who comes in, comes in at number one. She's she's apparently got $1 billion in the bank, I'm led to, I'm led to believe, although she does give out quite a lot to, to good causes. Um, King Charles apparently has $600 million. J.Lo apparently has $400 million and Conor McGregor, I mean, he's not done too badly. <laughs> he's got $200 million in the bank. Oh, so I'm led to believe. So yeah, there, there we go. But I suspect the four of them won't be won't be on Miami Beach. But maybe maybe I was wrong. I don't know. Well, that wraps up today's news show. Thank you so much to today's guest. Where can people find out a bit more about you and what you're working on, Andrea? Oh, I think best place is crew.com. We have actually just launched a 
a new brand new version of our website Monday this week. So go and have a look there. I had a look at it. It's very snazzy. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Emily, what about you? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Emily double underscore man. Uh, I, as well as on LinkedIn, uh, I do a, a fair bit of writing uh, around my the fintech space. And so follow along. Awesome. Nicole, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn if you search for Nicole Perry. And I'd love to hear from you on email. You can email me through nicole.perry at 11fs.com. Brilliant. Um, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, K8Moody on Twitter. Uh, and thank you, our listeners, for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at lemonfest.com. And you can find our mailbag link in the show description. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>